Well, hey, everyone. Nice to be with you. Donna and I are honored and happy to be here. Uh, it's been a long time, over 30 years since I was here. Over 30 years when I was like 10. And um, <laughs> spoke at a conference. How many of you remember that weekend of the conference when like 30 people got sick as you passed a virus around? Do you remember that? Yeah, it was terrible. And I haven't been invited back since. <laughs> and I am convinced that somebody named Malcolm blames me for bringing the virus. But it's really a joy to be back with you today. Now, listen, two different people have said something to me in the break, coffee time. And what they said was, we're going to go late. We're already starting late. Take as long as you want. The stupidest thing you can ever say to a speaker. Seriously. And I will not abuse that today. And I make you this promise right now. We will be done by two. If you would, <laughs> if you would, please turn with me to the 45th Psalm. Our reading is just going to be one verse, please, of Psalm 45. And our reading will actually be just verse number eight. And I do promise you, while I might need to take ten extra minutes or so today, it will not be two o'clock. Psalm 45 and verse eight. All your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. All of your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia. One of those strange evenings several years ago that... My work for the day was done. I just um, had to kill some time a little bit, turned on TV, and there was nothing really on that was fascinating to me, which is not unusual. But I saw something on the TV guide, and it said that there was a behind-the-scenes tour of Graceland, Elvis Presley's home. And I'd been there before on the normal tour and Knew a number of the people back from my music days that had been on stage with them. And I thought, well, kill a couple of minutes watching this. And as I turned to it, the reporter lady was hosting the thing with her microphone up. She said, when we come back from commercial break, we will go into the closet of the king. And all I could think of was this verse. And I turned the TV off and I turned to Psalm 45 and verse 8 and began to put some thoughts together. All of your garments, the real king, are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia. One of the things that I really love about the Bible is the, the little stuff that's sometimes very well hidden. That uh, we sometimes will, will kind of miss in a casual reading. And this verse, and frankly, this chapter, I think, is one like that. You'll notice in the heading that it is a, a, a psalm that was dedicated to the chief musician, set to a tune evidently called the Lilies, probably the tune long gone. Contemplation of the sons of Korah, the great servants of song. And the sons of Korah, it is said, 
sang this particular psalm for the coronation or whatever you call it of King Solomon. And we don't know that, but that's evidently Jewish history. But I find verse 8 to be an enormously prophetic messianic verse. All of your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. I don't know what you know about myrrh and aloes and cassia. These are not just in here by mistake. Myrrh is quite a, still a very viable commodity in the world today. It's well over a $5 billion industry. Not much here, but in parts of the world. Myrrh are thorny bushes that can only grow in very, very arid soil. And you obtain the myrrh, which is a gummy resin. You obtain it by piercing the stalk or the trunk of the bush. It's not uncommon for a person gathering myrrh to pierce it three, four, or five hundred times, depending on the size of the tree. And from it comes this resin, which somewhat ironically heals the tree. It heals itself. But this is a primitive band-aid. The resin has often been used from its medicinal and healing purposes to be put over a wound. And it would use the gummy resin as it would harden like a bandage that we would use today. Its healing properties could only come when it is pierced. I don't know if you knew anything much about aloes. We're all familiar with aloe vera for when you get too much sun. But there are more than 400 species of aloe of which nearly 300 of them are medicinal, very healing. But all of the medicinal aloes have this in common. The qualities that we need them for are only obtained when the leaves are broken and crushed. Cassia is often called Chinese cinnamon. Cassia is not obtained by being pierced. It's not obtained by being broken or crushed. Where you get cassia or cinnamon is by flaying the outer bark of the cassia tree. No mystery what the psalmist had in mind here. When we think of our blessed Savior, take a little walk into his closet we are greeted by a number of fragrances that come from being pierced, from being broken and crushed, and from being flayed. All of your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia. The very first garment that we would ever find in this particular closet I know you would know what it is. It's called swaddling clothes. I used to think that they were primitive diapers. But the truth is, they really weren't. 
They were burial strips. They were swaddling bands. An Orthodox Jewish person, knowing that if they died before sunset, they had to be buried that day, that's the law. If they died during the night, they would have to be buried as soon after sunrise as possible. It's part of the law. And so if they were ever to leave on a long trip, or even just outside of their village, it would not be uncommon for them to take these burial strips anywhere from one to three inches in width. And the fineness of the linen was dictated by how well off you were. And they would take a pre-measured amount and wind them around their torso inside of their outer robe, their garment. There would be enough quantity there as these links would be stitched together. There would be enough length that if they ever died on a trip, they would not inconvenience anybody familiar with the law who would come upon their body and instantly lift up their outer tunic to see if there was the quantity of swaddling bands. And they would wrap that person conveniently, a pre-measured amount. They would wrap it and they would seal it with that gummy resin and prepare the body for burial again. It is instructive because we have heard for years, and it's still true, of the one who was born to die, that you and I might have eternal life. So the very first garment that we ever learn of our Savior wearing is actually a burial garment. The Gospel of Luke in chapter 8, you don't need to turn to it, we're just going to talk about it, and you know it very well. We find a garment that Jesus was wearing that had a distinctive hymn. Now, it probably has never necessarily hit you. Uh, And it didn't hit me until I did some research on it. Of the differences in the tunics that Jewish men wore in those particular days. But in Luke 8, we find that the Savior and his disciples had been off on a trip. And if you read back in their itinerary, it had to be exhausting, numbingly so. They had been gone probably for somewhere five, six, maybe even as much as seven weeks. If you read the itinerary back, they had faced multitudes, crowds. He had healed. He had raised from the dead. All of his earthly ministry was on full display, and they had gone from coldish climates sometimes of the year to very, very exceedingly hot climates. They had crossed a couple of, we would not maybe call them mountain ranges in North America, but they would over there. They had done hills. They had gone through areas where there were bandits. They, they, had, they had walked it all with a couple of sails. It had been an exhausting trip. And now their little boat is headed to his earthly adopted village of Capernaum. And as they're coming, Luke 9 tells us, or Luke 8, as they're coming into the shore, there's this crowd of people. You know it's coming, don't you? Because this beloved rabbi of the synagogue named Jairus, his daughter of just 12, was a death's door. 
Now, you and I know that there were more miracles done in and around Capernaum than in every other place of his named ministry put together. Capernaum was highly favored. So it bears reason that Jairus and his wife would have certainly known and heard and maybe even seen some of the miracles performed by the Lord Jesus. At the very least, they would likely have known people who had been the beneficiaries of his great miracle-working power. So now their daughter is near death. And she is lying probably comatose, and desperate people will do desperate things when it comes to their children. And so they are waiting. And there's a crowd of people from the rabbi's home, and they said, you've got to come, and you have to come quickly. The daughter of Jairus is lying on her deathbed, and he takes off. No thought of all of the exhaustion, or finally I'm home. Nothing like that. They take off through the crowd, and he stops instantly. And he said, who touched me? Is there anybody here that loves being in a crowd? I want to talk to you if you do. I I don't mind at all being in front of them. Boy, I don't like being in crowds, especially in lines. So thankful that the day is gone when our children went to Disney World. Now we have a grandbaby coming along, so I guess it'll happen all over again. I don't like being in crowds bumped and jostled and people kicking the back of your feet when you're waiting in line. You know what I mean? I just don't like being in crowds. But we've all been there, and you know what it's like. And so he stops, and the disciples look at him, because after all, they're headed to a crisis. And he said, somebody touched me. Now, they reacted like you and I would. I said, Lord, look at the crowd. Of course somebody touched you. But those kind of touches are not only unique, they are extremely special. He says, no, I perceive that someone has touched me because healing virtue has gone from me. It's an incredible story. And here is this woman who had had a terminal illness for as long as Jairus' little girl had been alive. And according to the law, she should not even have been out in public. But she was. Because desperate people will do desperate things. She She knew she could not be hidden any longer. She comes trembling like a leaf in a hurricane. And she falls before him and tells what has happened. And her faith is remembered to this day. Unfortunately, the delay caused the little girl to die. And into that house they went. And our Savior promised a mother and father whose hearts were broken. Your little girl is just sleeping. And he speaks that word too. Talithakumi in Aramaic, little maiden arise, and she was healed. A garment with a distinctive hem. Archaeologists have found a few of these tunics. They're quite amazed by them, actually. 
And the reason that they are is because they are works of very personal art. It was evidently common that when a Jewish boy was leaving home for the last time as an adult, that his mother would weave him a seamless tunic. Started at the neck. They say there were probably numerous fittings while she was in the process of weaving this seamless coat. Once it was finished, the last thing that would be done would be the hymn. They estimate that it probably was hemmed around five, maybe six inches off of the ground. Low enough for modesty, high enough to keep it out of the dirt and the defilement. There's a message in there, isn't there? But she would, she would put on the breastplate of the tunic, not, not plate, but in this area of the tunic, they, the ones that they have found, there are embroideries that appear to represent a village and a business, an industry. One has a boat on it that's obviously a fishing boat. One has a little stick figure of a house evidently on it. And it would be, they say, they at least expect, it would be a reminder to her son of his life and of his village as he was leaving. But the bottom, they say, is very touching. That was what they call the mother's panel, where a mom would embroider things that she wanted her son to never forget. I've often wished that heaven could have some kind of a museum. I'd love to have seen that tunic. Who knows? Maybe one day we will. But that mother's hem became a distinctly gorgeous sight to a woman with an issue of blood. The very next chapter, Luke 9, the three principal disciples, Peter, James, and John, are with the Lord Jesus. And they are now on a mount that we call Transfiguration, high, high mountain apart. And right in front of them, Jesus is transformed. His whole countenance, his face, and even that robe, they become glistening. He was transfigured before them. Now, I love Peter. A lot of people beat up on Peter. I think he was extremely human. Unfortunately, I see a lot of myself in Peter. But Peter is overwhelmed by the moment. Don't fault him, people. We would have been too. And he gets down on his knees and he says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. That's where he should have stopped. But he kept plowing on. Let's pitch three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. <laughs> now, at least he gave the Lord Jesus first place among great men. But that would never, ever be enough for the God of heaven. And so the heavens thunder forth. With the voice of God saying, this is my beloved son. He is not just first among great men. He is the son of God himself. In John 14, we read of another garment. And here's the deal. We, none of us can be dogmatic today on what it was. Some say that it was a towel. Most of the translations 
beginning with the King James and descending down. Most of the translations call it a towel. Some say an apron. I don't know what it is, and I'm just not going to tell you today what I think it was. Probably, probably some kind of a serving apron, but we just don't know. The important part of the story in John 14 is not what the exact garment was. It was the lesson to be taught to the disciples. So the Savior takes off that outer garment, that tunic, and he puts something on, whatever it was, apron, towel, take your pick. And he takes a basin of water and a washcloth. And he gets on his knees and he begins to wash the feet of the disciples. And there were lessons to be learned in both humility and in sacrificial service. Wish we could spend more time on that, but we can't. Get back, actually, to that seamless coat in Psalm 22. It's part of prophecy, isn't it? They, they, they divided his garments, but they, they kept the seamless, seamless tunic. He is found in the 19th chapter of John wearing a linen cloth. He is found in Revelation chapter 1 wearing a garment down to his foot. That's an interesting garment. It had a golden band around the chest. We read that his head and his hair were white. We read, frankly, that his eyes were like a flaming fire. And in Revelation chapter 1, one of the last garments that we read of of him wearing in Scripture, here is what he says, I am the first and the last. I am he that was dead. And I live again. That long flowing garment of Revelation 1. We read at the end of Revelation, nearly chapter 19, of the Savior wearing a blood-stained vesture. If you read that last portion of Revelation 19, it's pretty graphic. It's interesting to me that he is wearing a blood-spattered tunic. Now, many of the translations say a tunic dipped in blood. So it must have been nearly covered with blood. But the word doesn't mean dipped in the oldest manuscripts. It means splattered. And he gives the picture there in Revelation 19 of the commander of an army that has been involved in a bloody battle. And he also tells us that the battle's not finished. He comes in and he makes his pronouncement and he goes back to the battle. The army of the Lord would prevail over his enemies. It's the last garment that we read of in the Revelation. And here we are, friends, early on, fairly early, at least into this 21st century. And all around us, the world's just falling apart, isn't it? It's on fire everywhere, it seems. And it's not going to get any better. And in our travels, Donna and I are meeting and we're talking with people that are a little bit frightened about what's coming. And they say, we're going to have persecution here in the next five or ten years. And we can't disagree. Things are just galloping now at the end of this age. People are a little frightened. 
When I read from Revelation 19, I find that I have a Savior who will ultimately prevail to perfection. And so knowing the end of the book, we can face the unknown with a certain faith and a certain confidence because of a perfect Savior who one day will conquer every one of his enemies. When I was younger, I used to have a question, not actually just younger. It was up until maybe 10 or 12 years ago. I had a question. Never really thought about it that much, but when I was reading in John 20, and I read about the linen bands, the burial strips that they wrapped the Savior in. Do you remember that expression that there was a face cloth that had been folded, a napkin, the King James reads, a napkin that had been folded and placed by itself that was seen by the disciples the morning of the resurrection. Do you remember that? I always wondered if there was some significance to that. Because after all, if you would take a body and wind it up for burial, you're not going to leave the face uncovered. You're going to wrap the whole body from the bottom of the feet to the top of the head, right? What was the significance of that? And I'm ever so thankful it actually came from a pastor of a church that I've never been to in your state up towards the north. And when I heard it, something clicked. And I said, you know what? That bears some research. And so I went to a friend of mine who was a rabbi's daughter. And I had her do some research and talk with her father. And it turns out that, lo and behold, the pastor outside of Orlando was absolutely right. They would have wrapped with the hugely valuable spices. They would have wrapped the body of the Lord Jesus. 100 pound weight of spices. Do you know that Josephus, the great Jewish chronicler and historian, tells us that when Gamaliel, the great master of the law, when he was buried, most respected teacher of the law in Israel's history, more than likely, that it caused a buzz that went all through Israel, out into the countryside and beyond, when they learned that they buried Gamaliel with 75 pounds of precious spices. That's how much he was respected. 75 pounds was the burial weight. It was always reserved for a prince. And he was not a prince. 100 pounds of spices was the burial rate weight uniquely reserved for a king. And they wrapped the Lord Jesus in those bands, sealed them with resin. But a wealthy man had given him his tomb to use. And so they would have stopped at his neck and left the rest of the bands rolled up like a roll of gauze. And so for three days, knowing that decomposition generally doesn't hit until the end of the third day, they would have, they would have used that privilege of a borrowed wealthy man's tomb 
to come in for three days of mourning and to see the face of the one that they loved. On the third day, they would complete the process of wrapping the body and seal the stone. But for three days, it gave them an opportunity to have a three-day viewing, a visitation. And so a loved one would come in, look at the body and the face of the one that they loved so much. And when they left, as a sign of respect, they would take that face cloth and they would place it over the face of their deceased loved one. Another one would come, would remove it, and when they left, place it back again. Now keep that thought in mind. In a great home in Israel, in a great home in other parts of the world in the time of Christ, if a person was having and hosting a meal, a good meal, a great meal at their home, they would have had their utensils much like we do. And they would have served their guests with fine linen napkins. And so there was a system that was devised. Everyone would have known it. If you had to leave the table for any reason, you would fold your napkin on the creases that had been placed there before you arrived. And you would lay it by itself above your plate. And if you were done and you were leaving for the last time, you would crumple it up and drop it on your plate or bowl. Any servant who would see the folded napkin by itself would know that it was a sign of, I am not finished. I will be back. And when those disciples went in that first Lord's Day, when up from the grave he arose, they would have taken one look at that napkin and hit them like that. I am not finished. I will be back. And we await it to this day, don't we? Some of the garments in the closet of our king, they bear a fragrance that is unique. And I hope that as we have recently begun a new year, that every one of us will endeavor that as we wind our way walking through life, People who come behind us might detect a little of the fragrance of our gloriously risen Lord. Thank you, Father, this afternoon for the beautiful word of God. Thank you for the hidden lessons. It's our prayer, our Father, that again, the fragrance of the blessed, beautiful Christ might trail behind us through life. We're thankful, our Father, for the humility of our Savior. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his righteousness might be saved. 
Our prayer is, our Father, today that even if there's someone here who has never accepted him as Savior, that the beauties of our blessed Lord Jesus will be so appealing to them today that they will want to know him. We're grateful for that wonderful time we had this morning to remember our Savior in the way that he has left for us to do. We ask our Father that the fragrance of that meeting might go with us long after we part. We give our thanks and ask, Father, that you will bring us back tonight in safety, we ask, in our Savior's name. Amen.